In December, the New York State Department of Financial Services announced proposed anti-money laundering and terrorist financing regulations aimed at addressing perceived shortcomings in regulated banking institutions' Bank Secrecy Act compliance programs. And soon, new regulations could impact other financial services firms, such as investment advisors, as the need for hedge fund and private fund managers to report suspicious activity reports to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network becomes more critical. Here, Lauren Resnick, a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York and chief of the Computer Crimes and Intellectual Property Section, who now works as a cybercrime attorney for law firm Baker Haas Stetler, explains how the proposed changes to BSA compliance will impact banks and investment advisors, including the cost of compliance and how bankers and advisors can take a risk-based approach to some of these newly proposed rules. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So Lauren, I just gave a really uh, detailed overview of, of some things that are taking place that are actually quite complex. Could you just tell us a bit about some of the proposed changes coming out from the New York State Department as well as FinCEN? Sure, absolutely. Um, the New York Department of Financial Services has been doing a series of um, investigations of major financial institutions in the anti-money laundering and OFAC compliance area. And through those have not only imposed substantial fines on some of these global financial institutions, but have identified areas where they find what they view as serious gaps between the institution's policies and its practices and implementation of its policies and procedures. So while the new proposed regulations does not material, except with one exception, change the expectations that financial institutions have had, they reinforce the focus on the importance of making sure that the institution is staying current on all uh, Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering laws and regulations and identifications, alerts of high-risk areas, high-risk customer profiles, high-risk jurisdictions to make sure that when they're implementing a risk-based approach, they're taking into account developing trends and information that the regulators are disseminating to the industry. There's, again, a big focus on meaningful transaction monitoring, not simply having a program, but making sure the transaction monitoring has a rule-based system that is properly addressing the higher risks and these trends that are being identified in terms of terrorist financing and the other areas. And the, the most meaningful and sort of what I'll call monumental change that the uh, New York State is proposing here is an annual certification by the chief compliance officers at the financial institutions stating that their anti-money laundering programs are in fact meeting all these objectives. It's sort of like a Sarbanes-Oxley-like certification and there are obviously both civil liability and potential criminal exposure with respect to any certification that a private citizen makes to governmental agencies, regulators, or prosecutors. So that raises the level of what I'll say, angst and elevates the real commitment on the personal commitment on the part of the chief compliance officer to comfort him or herself that these stringent rules and procedures are being effectively implemented. So Lauren, why is terrorist financing still such a worry? The New York State Department seems to think that banks in New York aren't doing enough. Well, if you look at what's been happening in terrorism around the world, ISIS is an example of a terrorist organization that is now becoming sufficiently institutionalized in terms of its access to natural resources and um, substantial amounts of money. And so the view is 
that terrorist financing is hitting a new stage. And while individual acts of terrorism are not necessarily costly, we have major organizations around the world now who may want to access the U.S. financial system um, because they have significant amounts of, of capital to invest. So that is a, a big concern among the uh, players in the financial industry as well as the regulators. And many of the major banks have actually developed intelligence divisions alongside their anti-money laundering compliance groups that are comprised of former military and law enforcement intelligence officers to conduct data analytics to make sure that they're looking at trends in the transaction activity that is proactive and not simply reactive to identify any potential nexus or contact um, with terrorist, known terrorist organizations. So it's taking on a new level of both financial commitment and resource commitment at many of the uh, global banks. So Lauren, let's expand a bit on something that you said here. I think this point that you made about the fact that there are now quote-unquote intelligence divisions in many of the larger institutions is a reflection of some of the issues that we've seen in the industry for some time. AML BSA compliance is tricky for banks and other financial services firms, I'm sure. And in recent years, we've seen the focus on AML kind of ebb and flow. Would you say that there are budgetary constraints, talent constraints, competition with fraud departments that are making AML compliance so challenging? There are. And it's interesting that the perception may be an ebb and flow. Um, there have been so many significant and costly enforcement actions, both by the Department of Financial Services in New York State as well as the federal regulators and prosecutors, that this has remained an important priority or should be an important priority for financial institutions. What's really happened, I think you've seen over time, is in what I'll call an upgrade in the quality of the personnel and the resources that the financial institutions are using for AML compliance. So whereas in the past this was a profession that was viewed as a pure compliance function where folks could get on-the-job training and learn how to manage the process, now many of the institutions want to hire lawyers and former prosecutors and regulators who have seen these kinds of both intelligence issues as well as um, law enforcement issues from the law enforcement or the government perspective um, to sort of upgrade the sensitivity and the experience level of their AML compliance departments. What that has created is both a lucrative career path for former government personnel as well as heightened competition between the financial institutions to really tap into that talent, recognizing that that talent is demanding sort of a, a higher price for its talent. So it's requiring you know, additional investments, budgetary commitments on the part of the financial institutions to keep ahead of the AML compliance risks and enforcement. So Lauren, having to invest more to hire the right kind of talent obviously is an issue, and we, we all understand budgetary constraints, but wouldn't the savings on the steep fines that a lot of these organizations are paying because they aren't in compliance with BSA more than justify the cost of investing in heightened BSA compliance from a more proactive perspective? There's no question that that is accurate and right. As you've seen, the fines that are being levied on the institutions, now first of all, there's a healthy competition between federal and state prosecutors and regulators. So what you're seeing is companion and parallel investigations where there are fines being levied both by the federal and state regulators and prosecutors. So the numbers are in the hundreds of millions of dollars, the billions of dollars on AML BSA violations. So the investment in a meaningful, well-resourced AML compliance program is well worth the money. But I guess what I would say to you is 
our experience in the private sector, now counseling financial institutions, is it's often hard to sell somebody a burglar alarm if nobody in the neighborhood has had their house broken into. But I think now that financial institutions have seen, if it's not themselves, that their companion neighbors, neighboring financial institutions, have been hit with substantial fines in connection with BSA and AML compliance, I do think there's a recognition within the industry that this is a good investment and it is worth the allocation of budget to make sure you have the infrastructure and the personnel, the right personnel, to be managing these types of programs. So, Lauren, what would you say are some of the shortcomings that most banking institutions deal with when it comes to AML BSA compliance? Is it the fact that they just don't have the right staff on hand, or is it a budgetary issue, or a little bit of both? I think it's a question of being dynamic and fluid enough to be taking into account the evolving trends and issues and being willing to re-examine existing customer profiles and relationships. So the areas of risk that I've seen financial institutions get into, and we've done some monitorship work in this area, is when institutions acquire new business relationships, they expand geographically. There are often legacy customer relationships that exist at the bank that present risks that are not re-examined because they're legacy relationships or legacy business lines. So there needs to be a willingness to have a periodic reassessment of the risk facing the organization, both from legacy customer business lines as well as newly acquired customer and business lines to make sure that the risk assessment that should be done every year annually is properly capturing the new and evolving risks based upon the alerts and the information that comes from experience and not getting sort of stuck into the same rule base. So I do think even in terms of personnel, having rotation systems within the compliance organization to make sure that people are taking a fresh perspective on the work that they're doing. It's really important to keep the function fresh. So let's expand on that a bit from the employee perspective, Lauren. Do you think that insider threats are a worry? So are banking institutions still not doing enough to vet internal employees to ensure that they're not a risk of manipulating the system or trying to mask illicit activity that aims to launder funds for things like terrorism? You know, that poses you know, a lot of challenges, both from a legal and a budgetary and otherwise perspective. Yes, individuals remain a risk to compliance. I think, and you know, most companies will vet background of employees upon hire, but far fewer institutions do periodic reviews or background reviews of their employees. Financial institutions will put their employees through OFAC screening to make sure, of course, that they don't have employees who are known to be on any specially designated prohibited list. But again, most people who have tendencies to create these kinds of risks or issues do not appear on those lists. Um, so it's, it's a challenging area. Companies find in today's climate there are pressures not to monitor their employees' social media. Um, so you know, there are tough policy issues that financial institutions need to consider as to how frequently they can update and vet and in what is the scope of the vetting they do of their employees. In my experience, most of the big problems in, within the financial institutions with respect to BSA and AML compliance, however, has not been due to an isolated employee who, with some exceptions, who has relationships with people overseas that are inclined to criminal conduct and, and terrorism, but it comes down to practices that um, are directed for business and commercial purposes to whether it's to remove from swift messages, 
places of origin that appear on OFAC screening lists that would prohibit those types of transactions or otherwise, you know, they require employees to sort of sign on to the improper practices. So it's usually, in my experience, not isolated to an individual employee, but there are other employees who are either involved in implementing the improper practices or are aware of them. So I think the bigger issue, in addition to being able to vet your employees, which poses just practical challenges, is to make sure that there are reporting mechanisms that employees are cautioned that if they're aware of something that they escalate. Because in today's world, the bigger risk is that the SEC has a whistleblowing division and offers large financial incentives for employees at financial institutions who see noncompliant conduct to take those concerns directly to the government, to the regulators, and not give management a chance to address them. And Lauren, one final question for you before we close, and I guess maybe it's not so much a question as it is an observation that I'd like your opinion on, and that is I'm really surprised that right now a lot of these financial services firms that aren't defined as banking institutions aren't already required to file SARS. So FinCEN's proposal that investment advisors be defined as financial institutions and adhere to the same regulatory mandates that banks do seems like a no-brainer. Is this worrisome or right on target in your opinion? I mean, I think it makes sense, although I do think, you know, we always run the risk of over-regulation. And when we're talking about investment advisors, um, particularly the hedge fund industry, the risk of money laundering are somewhat diminished, although there really is concern, as I said, that the larger funded terrorist organizations like ISIL may look to the multi-trillion dollar industry, that is the hedge fund industry, to essentially enhance its wealth. So I think the intelligence divisions of the banks are increasingly concerned about this um, and the financial institutions, and oftentimes they have affiliated investment advisors functions or they work with investment advisors. Um, the typical hedge fund structure has you know, less liquidity. There's an initial subscription. They, they typically will not take cash investments. So oftentimes you know, the wire transfers that are making the subscription payments come through traditional financial institutions who have rigorous AML compliance policies. But these are areas of investment that the banks need to look even closer at. With respect to the investment advisors themselves, as I said, there's not a lot of liquidity there. Many of them have an offshore and onshore structure and essentially delegate many of their compliance functions, including AML compliance functions, to offshore fund administrators. So one of the big challenges in the proposed rule is to get clarity around what is expected of investment advisors with respect to how they can delegate responsibilities like transaction monitoring and suspicious activity reporting to offshore fund administrators who typically have more direct contact with their underlying investors and handle those type of responsibilities. So I think it's an area that's important for the regulators to focus on to the extent that we have a lot of money flowing to the hedge fund industry. And as we have terrorist organizations that become more institutionalized with real assets, this is a place for them to outlay their capital. But I think leveraging the BSA and AML compliance of fun traditional financial institutions, banks and broker-dealers that are typically affiliated with or are the sources of funds that pass through them for the hedge fund industry is the best way to strike the balance between not having over-regulation that doesn't really address additional risk, but making sure that we are capturing all the players in the financial industry where these risks exist. Well, Lauren, I'd like to thank you again for your time today. Thank you so much. 
Again, we've just heard from Lauren Resnick, an attorney and AML expert. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.